Genesis 25, 19-34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together with her and her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, welcome to all of you in the sanctuary and, and all of those that are joining us from live stream as well. As Fred mentioned earlier this morning, uh, this week, we are starting a new sermon series on the life of, of Jacob, uh, a series that we're calling The God of Jacob. And as we always say here at One Ancient Hope, it's, it's the word of God, um, this word of, of which this story, this narrative of Jacob's life is a part that creates us as the church, it, it collects us, it calls us together as the church, and it crafts us as the church, as God uses his words to conform us into the image of Christ. So it's in light of that reality, and it's in light of that expectation um, that we come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that it gives to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear that promise today and that you would work that promise more deeply into our hearts, into our hands, and, and also into your head. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, the one who fulfills the promise. In the power of the Holy Spirit that you've sent. Amen. Um, one quick thing before I do get started. How is the feedback? Is it, is it okay in the sanctuary? Okay. Um, so as Fred said, one of the things, the theme that we're looking at today is the theme of renunciation. 
But what is it exactly that renunciation means? What does it mean to, to renounce something? Does it mean that, that we count the things of this world as not good? Because there, there's a notion of renunciation that simply rejects everything but God. It says God is the only true good and the only thing that we should really be seeking. It attempts to convince us that the desires for, for all the things that we find in creation, that these are mere illusions. That if we saw them rightly, that, that we wouldn't actually want or desire these things at all. And such a view might even go as far as trying to convince us that the things of creation are actually repulsive. C consider, for instance, this is one voice from, from history, and this is a quotation from the book, The Autumn of the Middle Ages. Someone says the following, quote, The beauty of the body is found entirely in the skin. If people could see what is really underneath the skin, we would find any physical body that we are attractive to sickening. Consider what lies hidden in the nostrils, in the throat, and in the belly. Nothing but filth. And if we cannot bring ourselves to touch vomit and feces, not even with our fingertips, how can we embrace ourselves, convince ourselves to embrace the dirt bag itself? End quote. That's a pretty strong quotation. The listener is told here to break their attraction to physical bodies by seeing them as, quote, dirt bags, as simply containers of vomit and feces. Any physical beauty a person has, we are told, is a mere illusion. It's a kind of, of thin cover, a kind of thin veneer over a layer of filth. Renunciation, then, would be seeing things simply by seeing through things. It's a kind of revealing that shows us how gross and disgusting and undesirable the things of creation actually are. And even if you are attracted to the physical beauty of yourself, you're merely coupling with a corpse. But is this renunciation? Is this a renunciation in the Christian sense? Is it a matter of showing us that the things of creation are not actually worthy of our desire or our love? If that's the case, then the very highest form of the Christian life is one of extreme asceticism, extreme denial, where we cut ourselves off as much as possible from the material world. And then renunciation would ultimately become a kind of retreat from the world. That delicious food, simply a future home for maggots. Better just to stick with bread and water and it's all going to dissolve in our stomachs anyway. That career, it's only a way to muck about in some part of creation. And hey, creation is all going to turn to dust anyways. Better to only and always give yourself to scripture and prayer. But we have to ask, is this the correct view of Christian renunciation? Is Christian renunciation the rejection of creation for God alone as the sole and only good? Well, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor is actually very helpful on this point. He explains that renunciation supposes that the thing that you renounce, that it's an actual good, that the things we renounce are goods. 
To renounce a good is to, rena- to recognize that that thing is actually a good thing, but to recognize that it's not your very greatest good. To renounce a good, you must recognize it as something you rightly desire, but that you must desire something else even more. Because God just is the creator of any and all things. He's good in everything in creation he made good. Yet we are called to love the good things that God has made in a kind of of order. Otherwise, we fall victim to what Augustine calls disordered loves. And when we wrongly love lesser goods more than we love greater goods, well, this is the basic logic of sin. As, as one of the great sages of the 20th century and, and former Iowa City resident, Flannery O'Connor wrote about the Christian life, and, and she says this in one of her letters. She says, always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. Always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. So sin is not choosing a bad thing. God has not created any bad things. Everything that God created is good. Yet some goods are greater than others. And to love lesser goods more than we love greater goods is to fall victim to sin. And to be sure that the greatest of all goods, but but not the only good, is God himself. And so he must be loved above all else. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here, and you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with the present passage? Well, I want to argue that actually it has quite a bit to do with the present passage, and and actually I think that we can understand the story of Jacob and Esau as two rejections of proper renunciation and one great act of renunciation. And toward that end, I want to look at this passage under three headings. Esau's refusal to renounce, Jacob's refusal to renounce, and last, the God who renounces. So let's first look at Esau. And what is it that Esau does? Well, Esau sells his birthright for a pot of stew. And in that culture, a birthright was a great honor bestowed upon the firstborn. It brought with it status. When when the father died, the child with the birthright became the head of the family. Even more, the birthright brought with it resources. Often, the child with the birthright would inherit more than the siblings, often twice as much. And so the birthright is a good that comes with many, many goods. It brought responsibility, it brought honor, it brought land, it brought livestock, And importantly, it also brought a right relation to one's family. What was supposed to come with the birthright was a kind of duty and responsibility to your family played out in wise and sacrificial leadership. And so birthright, a birthright, is a much greater good than is a pot of stew. However, not so to Esau. We find Esau entering into this dialogue, exaggerating, saying he is close to the point of death. Yes, Esau is hungry, very hungry, but it's doubtful that he's at the brink of starvation. And once he eats, he has no regret for what he's done. Verse 34 tells us he ate and drank and rose and went his way. 
After that, we're told, thus Esau despised his birthright. And Esau didn't despise his birthright by hating his birthright. He, he actually did recognize it as a good. Later in this narrative, in chapter 27, after Jacob steals Esau's blessing, Esau will complain, he will yell, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So yes, Esau does recognize his birthright as a good. He desires it, but Esau desires food more. He does not despise his birthright because he hates it. He despises it because he does not desire and love it as he ought. He loves the lesser good of a meal than the much greater good of a birthright. And we see Esau's insatiable desire for this food stand out strongly in his dialogue with Jacob. In verse 25, he says, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am exhausted. And after he says this, the text tells us the following. Therefore, his name was called Edom. In commenting on this verse, uh, scholar Leon Cass in his, his fascinating book on Genesis, he says the following, quote, Esau identifies with his food. As the text remarks, he becomes what he eats, earning a new name, Edom, red. Edom means red. And so Esau does not just eat his food, he becomes identified with his food. And even Esau's request for food could be translated better perhaps as, let me gulp down, let me swallow. And the word he uses here for, for, for eating is not usually uh, used to denote humans eating their food. It usually denotes the feeding of cattle. And so Leon Cass goes on to write, quote, Esau is not just hungry, Esau is rather the incarnation of animal hunger, a man of impatient and unbridled appetite, end quote. And this makes sense. What we love most, what we seek most, it structures who we are in foundational ways. If we seek food most, then there is a way in which we will deeply identify with food. And this might take different forms in our contemporary culture. I was talking to, to someone recently, and, and they had mentioned that they had seen an ad from a fitness guru, and the advertisement said something like, my whole fitness program is based upon the following question. What if your physical health was your very highest priority? Well, if that's your highest priority, you're not that far from Esau. Like Esau, this is going to bring pain in the long run. Your physical health will, will fade. There's no way around it. Our bodies age, our bodies break down, our bodies die. And if physical health is our greatest love, then we will come to deep sorrow, then we will come to deep grief. Food is a good, good gift from God. Physical health is a good, good gift from God. But if we love these as the greatest of all goods, then we will come to pain, to sorrow, to grief. Neither will last, neither will endure. And so we should never make these things our identity as Esau does. 
We must recognize them as a good, but we must renounce them as our greatest good. And so we have to search our own hearts and ask ourselves, what is it that we desire most? What goods do we hold on to tightly that the years will certainly take away? Ecclesiastes calls this a kind of chasing after the wind. Our physical health, our beauty, it will be undone by age. Our financial resources, they can be undone by a quick round of inflation. Our career, it will one day be cut short by retirement. These things will fall through our hands like sand. And if we make any of them the core of our identity, we will come to grief and to sorrow. But Esau is not the only one who gives himself to a lesser good and forfeits a greater good. And that brings us to our second point, Jacob's refusal to renounce. And the first thing to note about this is how Jacob is actually introduced to us. I believe the text is going out of its way to present Jacob in the worst, the very worst possible light. And how do we first meet Jacob? Well, to begin with, there's a war that's waging within Rebekah's womb. The Old Testament scholar Gornid Winham, he translates the beginning of verse 22, quote, the children smashed themselves inside of her. And he then goes on to note that this verb here, which, which he translates as smash, or crush, he says it was, quote, most frequently used figuratively of the oppression of the poor. Literally, it is used to describe skulls being smashed, end quote. And so painful for Rebecca is this fighting that's happening within her womb that she cries out, that she exclaims, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And it's interesting to note that the Hebrew wording here, the Hebrew grammar here is very choppy. It's very incomplete. And it may point to the degree of pain that Rebecca is experiencing. So painful is this fighting within her womb that she finds it even difficult to speak. And likely, what's in her head is the memory, the past memory of Cain and Abel. She knows the hatred that can develop between siblings. And perhaps even now, she's worried that one of them will grow and take the life of the other, just as Cain took the life of Abel. I believe she's fearful about the enmity between these two offspring. And when we think about that, in, that enmity, it also helps us to understand what's happening here in the larger context of Genesis. And I believe what is here in the background is God's cursing of the serpent in Genesis 3, 15. God says the following to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we have two kinds of offspring that are at war with each other. There's a great enmity between the offspring of the woman, Eve, and the offspring of the serpent. And perhaps Rebecca is fearful that this very battle is happening in her womb right now. And I believe that this is what the text wants the reader to think. And there's much more support for this. Because what are we told about the offspring of the serpent? 
Well, that he will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. And how is it that Jacob comes into this world? Well, verse 26 tells us afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob's name can be translated as a kind of grasping at the heels, and this image became associated with deception. We're told that Satan and his offspring would bruise the heel of the woman, and here Jacob comes into the world grasping, grabbing, and likely bruising the heel of this other child, this other offspring. And what's the next thing that we find in the text? Well, Jacob tempts Esau. Just as the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to forfeit their position with God, so Jacob tempts Esau to forfeit his position with the family. Even more, both the serpent and Jacob, in their own way, tell the people that they're tempting, if you eat, you will not surely die. In one case, it's a forbidden fruit. In the other, it's a pot of stew. But either way, the tempted are told, if you eat, you will not surely die. So Jacob is presented to us, I believe, in such a way that we are meant to think, yes, this is the seed of the serpent. We're meant to think that there is no way that he could carry on the seed of the promise carried on by the woman, by Abraham, and by Isaac before him. Clearly, we're meant to think this is the seed of the serpent. He bruises heels, he's treacherous, he's deceptive. He strikes us as the very image of the serpent, of Satan himself. But the logic here, the logic of sin is the same that we see with Esau. Again, to quote Flannery O'Connor on the Christian life, always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. Just like Esau, Jacob refuses the act of renunciation. He forfeited a greater good for a lesser good. While a birthright is a greater good than a meal, it's not a greater good than a person. Jacob sacrifices a person for his own self-interest in order to get what he wants. And ironically, sacrificing a brother for the sake of a birthright radically undoes what a birthright actually is. Because properly speaking, the birthright comes with a high level of family responsibility. The birthright comes with special duties to the family. However, Jacob gets the birthright by treating his brother very, very, very badly. And we can relate we see this dynamic often for ways that, that we ourselves can strive for positions of, of leadership or for authority. Often we, we seek these roles by seeing others as competitors, by trying to make ourselves look good and by trying to make them look bad, sometimes even undercutting them so that we can get the positions and they cannot. However, true, true leadership it's a kind of, of service. It demands love, and it demands sacrifice. And if we seek leadership by cunning and by strife, we actually undo what true leadership actually is. 
To get leadership like this would be acquiring a position that calls us to serve others by way of undercutting others. The whole thing just falls apart. And this is why an ethic based on ordering goods, it's not a consequentialist ethic. Getting a good thing in the wrong way is unethical. Good ends do not justify bad means. There exists an order of of goods that go from lower to higher with God himself at the top. And if our loves are rightly ordered to this order, loving lesser goods but loving greater goods still more, then our affections and our actions will be ethical. Then our actions and affections will correspond to the actual order of reality. And so if we love leadership more than people, well, we undo what leadership actually is. And if Jacob loves his birthright more than his brother, well, he undoes what a birthright actually is. If Jacob loved the birthright rightly, he would see the birthright as a way to love his sibling, not a way to deceive his sibling. Esau then becomes a means to an end. Esau is simply instrumentalized. And to be sure, Jacob has watched his father Isaac do this to Esau for years. We're told in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac loved Esau because Esau gave him food. Isaac has instrumentalized his own son in order to get food, and Jacob has instrumentalized his own brother in order to get a birthright. Both have treated Esau as a means to an end. And we too have done this. We see and treat others as tools for our own professional or financial success. We see others as tools to increase our own status or reputation. We can even do this with our own children, treating our children as as tools of our own acclaim, pointing out their victories in academics or athletics so we can show them off to other parents, so we can show them what good parents we are. We, like Isaac and Jacob, have a bent to instrumentalize others. This is also why the Christian conviction of keeping sexual intimacy within marriage is so important. So serious is God that we should never instrumentalize another person, never reduce them to the pleasure that they can give to us, that such intimacy can only be practiced within the context of each person wholly giving themselves to the other for a lifetime. God will not allow us to reduce persons to tools for meeting our needs. This is not prudish. This is protective. This is not repressive. This is realistic. This keeps us from seeing others as instruments, as treating them as tools for fulfilling our own needs and appetites. People may laugh at the Christian sexual ethic or perhaps think it's simply unrealistic. But there is no greater protection against reducing persons to instruments of physical pleasure as mere objects to satisfy our appetite. Keeping sexual relations within the lifelong commitment of marriage protects us from instrumentalizing because we can so easily do what Isaac does. We can love Esau because of the pleasure 
dietary or otherwise, that persons give to us. And to be sure, we have all done this. We have all fallen short of this ethic. We have all instrumentalized people in this way or another by thoughts or actions or both. The Bible, as I hope you can see, is not a book of, of heroes. It's a book of people like Isaac and like Jacob, like you and like me. People like all of us who are in desperate need of God's grace. And this brings us to the third and the final point, the God who renounces. So we looked at verse 28 before, but, but we only looked at half. Let me read it in full. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. With Isaac, we know that he loved Esau because Esau gave him meat. But Rebekah, we are simply told, loved Jacob. There's no reason going, there's no reason that's given. Rebecca simply loves Jacob because she loves Jacob. Tim Keller, he, he offers an example along the following lines, which is, is quite helpful here. He says, if, if you're married and, and someone asks you why you love your spouse, and you say that you love them because they are wise or caring or smart or funny or physically attractive or professionally successful or so on and so forth, then what happens if they lose this? What happens if they lose that thing? What if they experience a head trauma that changes their personality? What happens when age takes away the looks of, of youth? What happens if they lose their job? If that is why you love them, will you still love them when they lose it? Well, if you lose your love, then your love has been shown to be an instrumentalizing love. And in some sense, we all fall into this. We don't just love the person as the person. We love what the person can do for us. In some sense, we all love people because what we can get from them. We're fallen. We need the grace of God. But Rebecca, we're told that Rebecca simply loves Jacob. Yes, she likely loves the ways that Jacob serves her as a son, but most of all, more than anything else that Jacob does for her, she loves Jacob. Rebecca knows that persons, persons like Jacob, are a greater good than anything that they can do for us. And I don't think we're meant to read this to say that Rebecca does not love Esau. I believe what's being put forward here is a contrast between the kind of love offered by Isaac and the kind of love offered by Rebecca. And Isaac loves Esau because Esau is the kind of son he always hoped for. However, yes, Rebecca loves Esau, but Rebecca even loves the son who by all accounts seems the offspring of the serpent. No matter how treacherous Jacob is, Rebecca loves Jacob. And more than what Jacob can do for her, she loves Jacob himself. And how else could Jacob love the treacherous, deceptive Jacob if not simply because she loved him? She loves her son. She loves the child that God has given to her. And only if her love is not instrumentalizing can she love the one who offers her more pain than pleasure, more grief than gladness. And this, this is a picture of God's love. 
Keller uses the, the earlier example I mentioned to, to point to the love of God. God does not love us because we do something for him. God loves us because he loves us. And only this truth can make sense of this account, can make sense of this passage. Remember when the children are waging war within Rebekah's womb, Rebekah receives the following prophecy from God. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. We're told the older shall serve the younger. The younger shall carry on the seed of promise, and the Lord himself will come to be referred to not as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Esau, but as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, even though Jacob acts just like the serpent himself, he's not ultimately the offspring of the serpent. He's counted as the offspring of Eve, of the offspring of Abraham. And God makes Jacob the child of the promise only because God loves Jacob. God has chosen the most unlikely person, a treacherous deceiver, to continue the promised line. This can only mean that God's love for us is not instrumental. If God has chosen anyone else, we might be tempted to think that God chose this person because God needs that person. We might think that God needed a person of a truly virtuous character, of a truly pious disposition. Only that kind of person could carry out God's purposes and plans for the world. But God chooses the person that is the least likely to ever be a part of such a purpose. God did not choose Jacob because he needed him. God does not. God chose Jacob because by God's own pleasure, God loves Jacob. And like Rebecca, God does not love Jacob for what Jacob can do for him, but simply because he loves them. And that's the same thing that's true for us. God does not need us, but God loves us because he loves us. And how do we know this? Well, because unlike Jacob and Esau, God actually does renounce rightly. God refuses to forfeit forfeit a greater good for the sake of a lesser good. So much did God love us, and not what we could do for him, but we ourselves, that God the Son became human and gave his human life for us. Remember, to renounce something is to recognize that the thing that you are renouncing is a good thing, but to give it up, to attain, to acquire, to get a greater good. Renunciation requires that the thing being renounced is actually a good. And uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor is helpful here again, and he shows us that this logic of renunciation makes sense of the sacrifice of Christ. Taylor writes, quote, It is precisely because human life is so valuable part of the plan of God for us that giving it up has the significance of a supreme act of love. Think about Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as Christ prepares himself to face death on the cross. Christ prays, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Christ even asks that God the Father would let this cup pass from him. He asks, is there any other way to accomplish the purpose for which he became human? But we find that this 
This alone is the way that we must be saved. This is the cup that Christ must drink. This is what Christ must renounce so that he can have us. Again, think about Genesis 3.15. The serpent will bruise the heel of the promised one. And Christ is that promised one. He's the one from the lineage of Eve, of Abraham, of Isaac, and now of Jacob. And the bruising of which this prophecy speaks is not one baby grabbing at and bruising the heel of another. This bruising is the death of Christ on the cross. And this bruising troubles Christ deeply in his human soul. And with respect to this act of renunciation, Charles Taylor, he goes on to give a very helpful example, contrasting the death of of the philosopher Socrates with the death of Jesus Christ. Taylor says, quote, In one case, the serenity of the philosopher about to drink the hemlock, assuring his friends that he was going to a better place. In the other, the agony in the garden. The prayer to the Father that the cup might pass, only then swallowed up in the affirmation that thy will be done. How different is this cup than the stew that Esau swallowed? Christ is troubled in his soul because he is called to give up the great good of his human life for our sake. And only this act of renunciation can save us and crush the head of the serpent. Christ must take the punishment we deserve for all the ways that we have chosen lesser goods over greater goods and instrumentalized others along the way. And why is it that he can do this? Because Christ has lived the perfect human life. Imagine a life wherein the person never instrumentalized anyone, never loved someone primarily because of what they could do for them, but simply loved them because they are them. Well, this is the life of Christ, who loved God and neighbor simply because they were God and neighbor at every turn. And so Christ gives up his life not because he needs us, but because we need him. Christ does not love us because of what we can do or will do for him. Christ loves us. And so Christ does something great for us. The greatest of all things, he renounces his very life so that we can have life. Christ does not love us because we have provided him this and that, like Esau provided things for Jacob and Isaac. Christ loves us because he loves us, and Christ gave his life for us. And so Christ renounces his life so that he could give it to us. And all we must do is receive him by faith. By faith, we receive what he gave up, his own perfect life of righteousness before God and neighbor. It's not something that we earn. If it was, then God's love for us would be an instrumentalizing love, and Jacob himself would have no place in this story. We would have no place in this story. Salvation in Christ is something we receive. It's a gift. We are saved not because of what we can or have or will do for God. We're saved because God loves us and because of what he has already done for us. This is the difference between Christianity and any other religion. It's not about what we do for God, but about what God has already done for us. 
Esau loved, or Isaac loved Esau because he brought him the flesh of animals. How much more should we love Christ because he gave us his very own flesh? Even more, Christian renunciation never wholly loses the lesser goods that it renounces. Christ himself was resurrected, and what he gave up was restored and perfected. And this is the case with all true goods in the resurrection. Yes, we will one day lose our physical health, but one day we will receive bodies free of any sickness or corruption. Yes, we will lose loved ones, but one day we will fellowship together in a creation free from death, never having to say goodbye again. Yes, we will suffer the loss of relationships, but one day we will rest so secure in the love of God that even the harshest words uttered to us in this life will lose all their sting. Yes, we will suffer vocational and professional setbacks, but one day we will reign with Christ. Yes, we will have to forego meals and comforts, either by necessity or by choice, but one day we will feast with Christ on the choicest meats and the finest wines in the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this is the fulfillment of Christian renunciation. And so let us pray to the Lord, to the greatest of all goods. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that you love us because you love us not for anything that we can do for you, for you have done everything for us. Help us to know that. Help us to receive that. Help us to receive that gift by faith in Christ and rest secured in it. And because of that love, help us to love our neighbors simply because they are our neighbors. In Christ's name we pray, amen.